You're listening to Culture Matters, a podcast of the Village Church. Hey, this is Adam Griffin, and I'm here as usual with my co-host, Adam Hawkins. And we're joined today by one of Adam's uh, fellow staff members in Plano, Rachel Rosser, who's been a longtime biblical counselor, LPC, and now is a groups minister at the Plano campus. And today we're going to have a conversation via phone with Andrew Walker about his new book, God and the Transgender Debate, discussing how Christians can start to wrap their heads and hearts around the issue. All right, we're joined now by Andrew Walker. He's an author and the director of policy studies for the ERLC, and he's currently finishing up his PhD at Southern Seminary. Andrew, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's great to be with you all, and thanks for having me on. Oh, absolutely. Our pleasure to have you here. We're, we're, we'd love to talk to you about many things, I'm sure, but in particular today, you just finished a book called God and the Transgender Debate, and so we're talking today specifically maybe about some of the expertise you've brought to that, this idea of transgenderism, which has become a major topic of debate, like you say, debate from Caitlyn Jenner to Target, legislation around transgender bathrooms, President Trump banning those who are transgender from the army. It's, it seems like it's in the news every day. So let's just start with this, Andrew. How did we get here? How does this suddenly become such a big issue? I feel like when I was growing up, this was very foreign to me. Even in the last couple of years, I don't feel like I heard about it that often. And now it seems like not a day goes by where there's not something in the news about transgenderism. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I, I graduated college in 2008. And I mean, this wasn't on anyone's radar at the national level in 2008. And so you fast forward to 2007, and it seems like an entirely different social landscape. Um, and so, you, you know, what you said is, is also correct, that this has gone from zero to, you know, 200 miles per hour in about 1.2 seconds. And it's caught most of us uh, flat-footed in how to respond and think through this. Uh, as far as the reasons that we are where we are in this cultural debate, there's, there's not just one particular answer. There's, there's lots of different answers. Um, I think this is a part of uh, another aspect of the sexual revolution, which the sexual revolution is kind of premised on the idea that um, the goal of, of human sexuality and, and human embodiment is to just kind of fulfill someone's personal desires. So you have this idea of expressive individualism is, is what some academics call it that uh, the highest good in society is to simply actualize and fulfill one's desires. And so if someone senses uh, this mental perception, uh, we now live in a society where society kind of authorizes that, makes it permissible, and individuals feel the freedom to live in that. So you have the sexual revolution. Um, you know, honestly, you can, I would trace this back to even ideas like um, Gnosticism. And interestingly enough, um, N.T. Wright uh, a famous British uh, Christian scholar just uh, submitted a letter, uh, a letter to the editor in England, tying transgenderism and gender fluidity to this idea of Gnosticism. And, and Gnosticism is this idea that uh, physical matter mm-hmm. is something that's problematic, and that we can uh, transcend our, our our bodily limits, and that the true self is something that's not material. That there's a a consciousness that is something separate from the body. And that's something that Christianity has been fighting from the very, very beginning. And Christianity has always disagreed with because uh, the Christian framework for creation is that, um, I like to say that matter matters. 
that God made us embodied human beings um, with body and soul united together, and so that our bodies actually bear a purpose, and they're not something that we can simply transcend and get beyond simply because uh, we, we choose to think that we can. So, that's so those are just a, a couple of the, uh, of the reasons. I would say another one is, you know, we're living in an increasingly post-Christian culture, and so uh, the norms and uh, moral constraints uh, that, you know, once were assumed in a Christian culture are being cast off, and where that's being cast off, it's being displaced by a secular ethic. Yeah. Um, and so you're going to have a growing foreignness to the scriptures and a growing foreignness to the moral constraints that you know Western civilization has often been surrounded by because we've been thought of as a predominantly Christian culture. And so that's being kind of stripped away, and we're having a whole new type of, uh, of, of sec- sexual ethic and, and a secular ethic um, kind of coming in its place. So that's interesting. So you're connecting it to like an ongoing evolution that's been going on since the sexual uh, revolution and that we're in this post-Christian world. So just to get us all on the same page, let's talk about what do we mean by transgender? Give us a little bit of a definition for that, because I do feel like uh, in all these sexual revolutionary items, there's always a couple terms that aren't that used to be used that aren't okay anymore, or people don't mean the same thing when they say it. So around the words around transgender and uh, maybe gender dysphoria and some of this other language that people hear, can you give us a couple helpful definitions as we get started, and then we'll delve into a little bit more into the topic? Certainly, and and that's a great question because uh, so much of this debate we're having is is a linguistic debate uh, because every single type of word that we use has some type of meaning chalked full into it, and so we want to be really careful in the language that we use. Um, and I, I think there there is extra vigilance called for in how Christians even use the term transgender, because um, I, I actually think the term transgender uh, is, is problematic for everyday use by Christians, which really? is somewhat bizarre and puzzling, since my book title has transgender yeah. in the title of it. <laughs> um, but I'll, I can unpack that more. When we talk about transgender... Uh, transgender has become kind of a social, cultural, and political uh, ideology and identity and philosophical movement. Uh, and, and that is this notion that individuals who are born with one sex can live and identify with and be considered a member of the opposite sex. So uh, this is a situation where someone born with XY chromosomes has normal male anatomy, normal male physiology, uh, considers themselves psychologically more female, and so is choosing to live as a female and and no longer as a male. And so that that's a that's a philosophical argument, uh, while also being a a political um, identity and social identity, because it assumes at the philosophical level that individuals who are male can become female. And so there's there's an argument that the transgender movement is is wanting society to accept, and I think that's um, philosophically problematic. I think it's biblically problematic. Uh, but that's a whole separate issue from this uh, term or condition where we, what we would call gender dysphoria. And gender dysphoria is um, a psychological experience that a very small percentage of the population experiences where they sense an incongruence from their biological sex and their gender identity. So someone, again, 
uh, is is experiencing this incongruence or a or a misalignment, and that's causing stress. It's causing anxiety, uh, a sense of distress at that at that psychological experience. Um, what I really want to be nuanced in is to say that uh, not everyone who experiences gender dysphoria is going to identify as transgender because again, transgender is a much more comprehensive holistic personal identity and experiencing gender dysphoria is akin to someone saying I experience uh, bouts of depression. So th- this is a question of of if we experience things, how are we grappling with those as Christians and how are we choosing to understand uh, what we do with those with those experiences and those afflictions. And I would say as a Christian, uh, we can fully explain and grapple with the notion of people having gender dysphoria. Um, this is a a medically and psychologically diagnosable condition that, again, a very very small percentage of the population will ever experience. Um, but it's listed along other psychological pathologies with uh, other mental health issues, so anxiety, uh, depression. Um, suicide, thoughts of suicide, eating disorders. And so this is just another aspect I think we see of, of, how we, of, of us living in a fallen creation. Um, I've caught in a lot of um, heat and criticism for rooting transgenderism uh, as a product of living in a fallen creation and a fallen creation being fallen because of sin. But I think if you accept the Bible's view of, of what it means to live in a Genesis 3 world and a Romans 8 world where all of creation is groaning, um, that can explain why we would live in a world where people experience psychological states um, that you know, pr- cause them heartache and cause them distress. I mean, we can explain that. And, and one of the things I've been writing about uh, in this book is the beauty of the Christian narrative is that the Christian narrative helps us explain uh, why people are the way they are, uh, why this is not how it was supposed to be, but ultimately how there is a future where how things currently are are not how they're going to be when you live with a framework of resurrection and new creation. I know that the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for um, Psychiatrists and Psychologists, they changed the terms back in 2014 from um, gender identity disorder to gender dysphoria. So it was where they were seeing it was more of a problem in the way that you perceive things and changing more of the mind, and now they're kind of trying to change more of the biological functioning um, versus kind of changing the aspect of what you're thinking about yourself. And you mentioned some good things, especially when you were talking about um, anorexia and how um, even body dysmorphic disorder, you don't actually yeah, yeah. teach someone um, that, you know, if an anorexic is looking in a mirror, you know, that she is extremely obese. It's really, we challenge those perceptions. Um, and you were talking about it just in light of being a sin and fallen um living in a fallen world. So how can we really um, help uh, understand this just in light of God's good design? So I would say that um, if someone is choosing to to identify as fully transgender, I do think that that is incompatible with following Christ. I want to say that gently, um, and again, recognizing that there are individuals who experience gender dysphoria. And, and I think uh, when we look at the Scriptures, the scriptures present a understanding of creation that um, that recognizes God as the sovereign creator, 
um, and where humanity's response to God's sovereignty is to accept the natural limits and constraints that God has put in his creation. So uh, I don't look at the scriptures and see this idea of um, an innate, fluid concept of gender and sexuality, that there is, uh, we read in Genesis, and chapters 1 and 2, there are objective categories of male and female. And so choosing to abscond or negate those creaturely limits, I think, put us afoul or are um, transgressing, I would say, biblical principles of God's sovereignty and creation. But I also think it, it's problematic for um, philosophical and natural law purposes as well. But what I would say when we look at the notion of of understanding this as a part of God's good design, a part of this is understanding what is what God is doing in this creational framework. So we read that God created humanity in his image. Um, he made humanity male and female, and he made male and female exclusively for one another in their design. And so a, a part of grappling with God's good design is is understanding this this complementarity, this understanding of difference. Uh, I actually marvel at the understanding that God made the sexes so so radically different that He knit the difference down to our chromosomes. Uh, so we are radically different in in understanding of that framework, but we are very similar in the sense that we need that the sexes need one another to fulfill this this societal script of procreation. I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons Genesis is so relevant to this discussion, is that Genesis 1, as I write about in the book, is what I call an architectural blueprint. Um, it's not just uh, a fable or a mythical story written 4,000, 6,000, however long you date Genesis. Uh, I, I see Genesis as kind of a a framework for what God is doing with creation. And then most importantly, we see Jesus in the New Testament, in Matthew 19, reaffirm this creational framework. So even with the, the reality of the kingdom having come in Jesus, Jesus reaffirms the validity and integrity of the created order. Well, let um, me... and so part of the reason I see this as, as so important to the Christian discipleship is Jesus himself reaffirms the created order. And I, as a Christian do not want to live contrary to what I see Jesus' words uh, revealed in the Scripture with. Let me turn the corner for just a second, and let me bring it in here, and let's talk about why it's important that we would talk about this as a church, Mm -hmm. and then turn the corner, and I'd love to hear from Rachel and Andrew both on just how we care for people, that this is their struggle. But Adam, one of the things that Andrew says in his book, and I think you could speak to this really well, one of the things in his book, God and the Transgender Debate, he says, I'd love for the church not to be constantly playing catch-up in culture. We shouldn't let it always be the case that the church addresses an issue only when the broader culture takes it up first. And since you and I host this podcast talking about culture, just before we turn the corner to how do we love on people that this is where they live, why do you think it's important that we would even be talking about this? And why is this a cultural issue that the church should enter into? And I love Andrew's point there about, hey, we don't want to be the last ones to talk about this. We want to be at the front end of this. What do you think? I'll say this. I think we talk about it because, like Andrew just said, God has something to say about it. Um, And so I... You know, 
One of the things, um, you know, you can get in debates about why the church would speak into specific issues or not speak into those issues. I think right now there is a, we've talked about it, but um, the cultural imagination, the societal, I don't know, um, um, conscious has like been captivated by this debate. Yeah, it has. Uh, and there's, and, and so, yeah, it's always in the news now and and like Andrew was saying a minute ago, we we seem to find ourselves behind the eight ball a lot of times in these in these discussions. Um, uh, but I think it's important again, I, not just because society at large is talking about it. It's important because these are real people, yeah, with real lives and real struggles. And if we believe the gospel, uh, we believe the gospel has something to say to them about these struggles. It's actually, I mean, sort of to help us turn the corner a little bit, it is something that I find, um, you know, one thing I would hate for Christians to do is sort of just be uh, dismissive in some sense to say, why do, why do we need to talk about this? These, this is crazy stuff or whatever, right? Uh, but instead to realize how much we actually have in common um, with people who are struggling because sin, as Andrew talked about the fallen world, I mean, sin and suffering are coming for all of us. That's right. And so to look at our, to look at the situation we find ourselves in where, where people are saying, Hey, I, I it's more important how I feel than what's objectively mm-hmm. true about me. Instead of sort of saying, how could you do that? Uh, to be able to enter in and say, actually, you're right. There's something really important about how you feel, but maybe the picture is incomplete, I think is really important. And so just the idea that like, I was talking with you earlier, Adam, but just the idea that like um, somebody would look in the mirror and and say, man, how I feel on the inside doesn't match up with what I'm seeing or yeah. the fa- or how somebody might say, man, uh, how I feel about myself, right, um, is, is not congruent with how the world sees me or, you know, or I want to be different than who I am. All these struggles are things that I, I, I would, you know, pose are common to man yeah. uh, in general, mankind, you know, so both men and women. And, and so I think for us to be able to address this issue and learn how to come alongside people who are, are struggling in, in any way, you know, um, is really, really important. Um, and I, and again, I think the gospel has something to offer. So that's great. Let's, let's jump from there. And Rachel, I'd love to hear from you first and then Andrew, you too, but how do we then as the church, how do we minister to, how do we love on those who in this environment might come to us and say, this is what's going on? Or the parent that comes to you and says, Hey, this is what my son or daughter is dealing with, or this is what I'm seeing in the culture. Rachel, this is caring for people is what you do day in, day out. I don't know how you do it, but you're so good at it. What advice would you have just for the the Christian person listening in? This is how I'd advise you to care for somebody who's struggling with what we're talking about today. I think the first thing that you would want to do is really listen uh, to the person that's confiding in you, whether it's a parent talking about their child or whether uh, it's a friend or a coworker that you would want to listen. You'd really want to enter into their world, much like Christ entered in uh, to our world. And you'd really want to try to understand um, kind of where they are. Uh, you know, it might be these ideas of, oh, I've always felt this way. Um, and, and sometimes, and, and ultimately that can be deceiving, but you really want to enter in with compassion. Um, and, but, Love without truth is enabling, and in truth without love is being a bully. Uh, mm-hmm. And so you want to really hear kind of where they are, where they're placing their identity in. Um, and, and right now we live in a day and age where people don't really have a construct of an identity. They place it in lots of different things, whether it's their work or whether it's being a mom, uh, being married. And so really trying to 
get to where they're placing their identity. Um, and then we all have disordered desires, much like Adam was talking about. Um, we can relate to this uh, because we all are sinners uh, and we all are very prideful and we do believe um, that what we do is best apart from Jesus Christ. And so we want to be able to just enter in and really understand um, with compassion um, and, and waiting and then speaking the truth and love to them um, and asking them, you know, what they're hoping to get out of this, uh, if they're transitioning, um, what their desire is, what desires aren't being met. Um, there was an op-ed study in the Wall Street Journal by, um, it was a chief psychiatrist, Paul McHugh, and he was talking about specifically how surgery actually doesn't change um, this disordered desire. Uh, and this is a secular psychiatrist at John Hopkins that's talking about this, that it's it's not actually changing the problem that's within um, somebody uh, that is struggling with gender dysphoria, much like um, an anorexic struggling with weight, it's not going to change the more weight she loses. Mm. It's not going to change how she perceives herself. So surgery isn't going to change those things. Now, we do know that Christ changes, um, and it's really introducing the person uh, to Jesus and how he empathizes with them, and just the pain of um, feeling left out. There's been some studies recently where women who have struggled with uh, gender dysphoria often can... um, also identify with uh, being on the autism spectrum. And Mm. a lot of them do have Asperger's, which that makes sense, not understanding social norms and social cues. And so really trying to get them to relate uh, to Jesus as a person um, and seeing him uh, for who he is and what he's come to rescue them from. That's a great place to jump back to you, Andrew. Rachel mentioned compassion several times. The first chapter of your book is talking about Christ and how he had compassion. And it's a great example for us, archetypical for the Christian. So Speak to us about that. Why write a book on this, and how do you advise the Christian church, the Christian individual, to have compassion for the transgender community? I want to first by just amening everything Rachel just said. Uh, that was that was exactly spot on, and I completely agree with everything she just said. You know, uh, as I was writing this book, I came across this passage, and I, it's in chapter one, actually, where Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, a bruised reed he will not break. Um, and, you know, I, I've been to seminary, I have some advanced degrees in the Bible, but had somehow missed the imagery in, in mm. those verses, and went to some commentaries and unpacked what was going on there, and, and Jesus is appealing to uh, very metaphorical imagery of, of, of a very gentle stick that if you apply just a little bit of pressure to that stick, it'll break. And so all the commentaries I was reading... Um, they were depicting Jesus' ministry as one of gentleness and as one of compassion and love. And that was actually a very, very profoundly spiritual experience of writing this book, because uh, I had somehow missed that visual imagery um, in all of my upbringing. And so Jesus says, a bruised reed he will not break. And so when we look at the transgender debate in particular, um, like what Rachel just said, Um, you're dealing with a class of persons that are dealing with um, tremendous amounts of uh, personal anxiety, um, some social awkwardness, uh, high incidences of depression. Uh, There's there's often comorbidities of depression, I'm sorry, of of suicide and, and thoughts of suicide. So we're dealing with very, very vulnerable people. And so I think the good news of the gospel and and looking to who Christ is in this situation is to see Christ fundamentally as someone who is gentle and kind to those who feel that they're they're, um, at their wit's end. And so I think a soft word is really important here. I think gentleness 
is is very very important. I think listening is very important. Um, you know, although I disagree with with where the culture is going on this issue, one of the uh, profoundly helpful things in the culture is it's making people feel like they can be more honest about these experiences mm. that they're having. Um, and so I'm actually glad that people who are hurting and struggling feel more free to to express and talk about those those perceptions and those harms that they're experiencing. And uh, that's giving the church an opportunity to recognize maybe where we have not in the past been sensitive and compassionate. Uh, because, again, a lot of times we've associated the transgender issue um, with some very unfair connotations. Uh, we've... we've um, brandished this particular category sometimes very inappropriately, jokingly, um, and we've, we've made hyper-masculinity and hyper-femininity the standard. Um, and so I think this is, this is helpfully um, causing us to evaluate you know, the norms that Christians hold as male and female. What aspects of those are truly biblical, and what aspects of those have we problematically grasped on from the culture's view of gender stereotypes. Yeah, that's really... So, all that to say, this is an issue where, um, you know, the individuals I've spoken with who experience gender dysphoria, who identify as as transgender, they aren't primarily seeing themselves as individuals in a culture war. They're seeing themselves as individuals uh, trying to live a life of self-acceptance. And we may disagree with how individuals choose that identity, uh, but... Because we live in a Genesis 3 world, that means everyone stands equal at the foot of the cross. And so everyone has a common brokenness that allows each of us to, at some level, um, understand um, heartache and, uh, and the search for acceptance. Yeah, you brought up the the kind of cultural war. This is a conversation that tends to happen a lot in the public spheres, particularly right now as it surrounds legislation, as it comes to what does this have to do with our school bathrooms or the laws being made, or like we mentioned earlier, even the military um, new orders about military and transgender military members. What, do you believe there's anything that Christians have a responsibility to interact with on a public level if we believe differently than the culture on an issue like this? And I'm asking you specifically, Andrew, as you've thought about this, read about this, is there anything corporately you think or individually you think that Christians should be voicing their opinion if a difference from culture on this or we have a responsibility to interact with it on a public level? Certainly. So I think Christians have um, have the responsibility and and the duty to vote in such a way that uh, they're voting with what is true about the world and true about human nature. And so, uh, you know, I find, I find voting for any policy that is uh, running contrary to the scriptures, I find that to be problematic. And so I think, you know, at the baseline, principial understanding, we, we want to vote and, and act on what we believe is true. Um, and, but that it doesn't just stop there because we see this this not being a live and let live cultural debate. So when you look in places like New York City, if you're an employer and you misgender someone with the wrong pronoun, um, you can be fined uh, up to two hundred fifty thousand uh, hmm. dollars. And so what we're seeing is that there is there is um, there is kind of an authoritarian impulse behind this, and I want to use that language uh, carefully, but. Forcing someone to use pronouns that they disagree with uh, is forcing them to buy into an ideological and philosophical uh, construct 
that they fundamentally view at odds with their conscience. And so that, that's problematic at the social level because uh, you begin running into religious liberty and, and conscience objections. And I, as a religious liberty advocate, I'm very sensitive to that. I'm also very sensitive to how this is taking root um, around the bathroom debate. And I, I don't even like calling it the bathroom debate, but that's what it's gotten cast as in the culture. But uh, I am I'm not calling transgender individuals, um, you know, uh, predators. That's not what I'm interested in saying at all. But what we do know is that where there are laws that are more lax on bathroom laws, uh, it allows those with bad motives to take advantage of these looser bathroom laws. And so I think that's problematic from the standpoint of protecting women and protecting children. Uh, when you look at the issue of how this is affecting public schools, um, I am I am incredibly burdened for public school parents who are sending their kids into public schools and what what kids are learning these days around sexuality and gender. Because uh, I'm I'm very afraid that we're heading to a point where it's it's beginning to be impossible for a teacher to vocally affirm um, a a Christian worldview around sexuality and gender because that's now considered bigoted in some pockets of the culture. And so at at best, parents can hope for a situation where a teacher will not be actively hostile to their student if if that student has a biblical or traditional understanding of sexuality and gender. So I I really I, I wish there were there were ways out of this. Um, but we are seeing this increasingly kind of inch its way into every avenue of the culture. Um, and where that is beginning to take root, there there have been very problematic repercussions down the road on parental rights, on privacy, um, and just issues of conscience and religious liberty. Well, something you brought up just now that I'd love to hear from Rachel and Adam a little bit on is the drive to see legislation change or the drive to make school choices or whatever out of fear. And as Christians, we don't believe that uh, there's reason for us to make decisions out of fear, right? But I Let's talk about, for just a second, Rachel and Adam, why is it so important that we would advise our people, especially on an issue like this, to not come to conclusions about things out of fear, but out of love and hope, to think about how do we have, like we talked about, like Andrew talked about, this compassion, how do we love our way into making choices for our family, into addressing the public sphere, but how do we, like, how do you advise the Christian not to talk about this out of fear? Well, the first thing I would do uh, with your kids is have really uh, just being able to talk to them about what's going on. It's so important um, not to instill fear in the hearts of our children um, and to be open and honest and having these discussions with them. Uh, we do want to be lights in the world and our lights shine brighter when they're in such a dark place. And so making decisions um, based on, you know, what would the Lord have us do? Because um, it may be where they're going to be taught different um they're going to be taught different things on sexuality, um, but it is our job to talk to our children every day about what they're learning and combat that with a biblical worldview. Um, so that way they can actually be the ones to go and have conversations with their friends in the public square. Um, my sister has four children, three of her four children are school age, and uh, they are all in public school. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's having conversations with them. I have conversations with my two oldest nephews about some of these things at age appropriate levels um, and just, you know, how they can be a light in a dark place um, would be the hope uh, that I would have for Christians as they're interacting with um, others. 
Yeah. Uh, the only thing I would add to that is just that um, I think caution and fear are two different things. And nobody's asking parents to, when we say uh, it's it's dangerous even, uh, maybe, or it's, um, it's ill-advised to um, act uh, out of your fears, uh, really in, in those... Um, what we're not saying is that you shouldn't be intentional or that you shouldn't be cautious or that you shouldn't think through these issues. Uh, I think that's actually what we are saying. When we say don't act out of your fears, we're saying don't be reactionary. Um, don't be too quick. Don't don't make irrational judgments when you don't have all the information. Um, because a lot of times what you can end up doing when you're acting solely based on fears is you can really uh, – uh, you can do damage in the long run, I think. Um, and so, yeah, I think the, the um, idea is rather – uh, to have the inco- to have the conversations and be intentional with your kids, uh, and and we're speaking namely about um, you know how to ha- education in, in our children right now. So I'm, that's why I'm addressing the kids uh, picture. But as it relates to bathroom legislation and those kind of things, um, I really do think um, what what we need to be focused on is how do we love each other with the love of Christ. Mm-hmm. That's what I would just go back to. So that's yeah, great. I think so many of the people struggle with fear and shame. So actually befriending those um, yes. is what Christ would do. And so I know that that is, is something that's brought up is that um, a lot of people who struggle with gender dysphoria say that you can't speak into the issue if you don't have friends who are transgendered. Um, so I do think it is important for us to make friends with people who are on the fringes and really love them with the love of Christ and not to be afraid uh, of those who are different um, Andrew, anything, as we conclude, as we bring this to a close, this conversation, anything from your book that you feel like this is something we didn't touch on today, but is so important, or any final encouragement you have for those who would be listening on why they need to engage this issue? Sure. I, I, I want to you know, follow up a little bit with the, the last conversation. Is One way that we can approach this uh, not out of fear is to go into the discussion with eyes wide open. Um, and what I mean by that is to have kind of a personal reckoning that you can no longer avoid this issue. Um, you can no longer sidestep the issue. Uh, I am daily having a conversation with a, a friend uh, or a parent who is encountering this uh, at some level of the culture, and they're realizing that they do not have the luxury to not have an informed opinion on this. And so That's a good I point. would encourage parents, if, if those who are listening, I think it's really incumbent in this day and age for um, parents to be responsible on this issue. And it means to do some due diligence and to really explore what the scriptures mean about gender and sexuality. You know, so much of this conversation has just been taken for granted um, because, again, most of society has been kind of largely formed by a Christian worldview. So we haven't had to examine our assumptions about sexuality and gender. But the cultural conversation is forcing us to do that now. Yeah. And so that means that parents are going to have to really, really be intentional about this and have those conversations with their kids age appropriately, uh, because if parents don't, the culture surely will. Um, and so we have, I think, the, the biblical responsibility to, to equip our kids to, to deal with this issue lovingly um, and, and to take an active role in, in their lives. Andrew, thank you so much for writing on this difficult topic, for taking the time to speak with us about it today. It'll certainly serve the church to have a resource from a Christian worldview on this. Thank you so much for your time, Andrew, and thank you so much for your book. Thank you.
If there's anything you heard on the show that you'd like to know more about, you can find details on our website, tvcresources.net. We'll see you next time. God bless.